This morning, I bring to you the opening of our Advent series. Advent, the word means to come. We are not looking for the coming of the babe in the manger of Bethlehem any longer. He came 2,000 years ago. Jesus Christ could have ridden out of heaven on a white horse as a full-grown man to take over the planet, but he didn't choose to do it that way. He chose to come and experience life at every stage and every moment, the failures and the triumphs and the disappointments and the frustrations and the happy and the sad and the grief and the excitement, all of those things. He came to experience it as a man, yet fully God in the flesh. The season that we enter is one that is rife. It's filled with all kinds of things that have crowded in and surrounded the central theme. This whole theme is about the presence. Everybody say presence. You know, all you have to do is just change those last two letters to T and S and it becomes very materialistically focused. Christmas is not so much about the presence T-S as it is the presence C-E. It is the presence of God with us. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and shall bring forth a son and you shall call his name Emmanuel. 700 years before the prophecy came to pass and they laughed Isaiah to scorn. You must be smoking something, buddy, because you show is out of your mind. 700 years later, Isaiah had the privilege of leaning over the balcony of heaven and said, ha, 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 I told you so. Look right down there in a little manger in Bethlehem and Ephrata of Judah. And the promise of God came to pass. The season of Advent is about preparation of our heart. It's about moving all of the other things, the trappings, the accoutrements. I love the decorations. I love the presents. I love to give and I love to receive. We are humans. It's something we do. We, we have taken the gift of God and we symbolize that by sharing and giving gifts to each other. I, I'm not here this morning to explain the myriad of Christmas traditions that have come from multiple cultures, most of which don't even have any biblical basis whatsoever. And I, I don't want to be offensive in any kind of way. You, you celebrate and you choose to do whatever things that you like to do in your family in the Christian liberty that God has given you. I just want to say to you that centrally to this whole thing, it is about a baby. A baby who came, who was born to extremely impoverished parents of which there was no room to be found in a respectable place for the king of the universe to be born. And so he found himself in a feeding trough, in a manger, in a stable, because there was no room in the inn. And for centuries, the church has celebrated this season called Advent because it was about the purpose of preparing our hearts to receive the second coming, the second Advent, when he would return, not this time as a baby, but this time as King of Kings and Lord of Lords, not coming to take sides, but coming to take over. And then shall the end come. And he is the end. He is the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. Somebody give me an amen this morning. I know you're comfortable and I'm going to ask you to stand with me one more time. My text is found in two places. First Timothy 1.1, the apostle Paul writes to Timothy and he says, God, our savior in Christ Jesus, our hope. Everybody say our hope. Our hope. 
Psalm 65. I want you to stand with me for the reading of this entire psalm. Let's read it out loud. Give, give me a hearty reading this morning. Praise is due to you, O God, in Zion, and to you shall vows be performed. O you who hear prayer, to you shall all flesh come. When iniquities prevail against me, you atone for our transgressions. Blessed is the one you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, the holiness of your temple. By awesome deeds you answer us with righteousness, O God of our salvation. The hope of all the ends of the earth and of the farthest seas. Stop right there. I want you to say that last line with me. Say it really strong. The hope of all the ends of the earth and of the farthest seas. The one who by his strength established the mountains, being girded with might, who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves, the tumult of the peoples, so that those who dwell at the ends of the earth are in awe at your signs. You make the going out of the morning and the evening to shout for joy. You visit the earth and water it. You greatly enrich it. The river of God is full of water. You provide their grain, for so you have prepared it. You water its furrows abundantly, settling its ridges, softening it with showers and blessing its growth. You crown the year with your bounty. Your wagon tracks overflow with abundance. The pastures of the wilderness overflow. The hills gird themselves with joy. The meadows clothe themselves with flocks. The valleys deck themselves with grain. They shout and sing together for joy. Bow your heads with me, please, together this morning for a word of prayer. Gracious God, you not only created all of this, but Lord, you continue to sustain it and hold it together. Literally, it is by Christ that all things consist and are held together. Jesus, you are the glue of the universe. Thank you today for the blessings that you have poured out upon us this year. Thank you for this Thanksgiving season which we have just come through. Lord, we've eaten well. We've enjoyed family and friends. Lord, I just ask you today that as we stand together this morning in your presence as the people of God, Lord, that you would open our ears to hear and our hearts to understand. Give us, oh God, a glimpse of the hope that you have for us. Jesus, thank you, oh God, that hope is kindled alive in our hearts today. In Jesus' name and all of God's people said, amen. amen. You may be seated. Advent takes central themes. It begins in hope. It moves beyond the candle of hope and we light the candle of love. It was in the love of God that we celebrate the coming of Yeshua, Hamashiach, the Messiah, the one, the seed. Genesis 3.15, it's the protovangel. It's the place where Adam and Eve had just sinned against God, breaking the only law that God had laid down, saying that everything out here, as far as you can see, is yours, but the one tree there is mine. Leave it alone. It's mine. It was the tithe principle in the middle of the garden. God said, this is mine. Leave it alone. And like all humans, our first ones, our great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-
Really no different than today. The biggest battles that you and I fight are between our ears and from the neck up. And it has to do with the battleground of the mind. The challenge toward us in the very same way that the serpent came in the wilderness to Jesus. Our forebears were in a perfect environment and blew it. A garden, a paradise, Eden itself. Jesus the beginning of the new creation of God, the firstborn of the new creation of God, the Bible says. Later, he will be named the firstborn from among the dead. He's the firstborn because there are a number two and a number three and a number 10 and a number 120 on the day of Pentecost and 5,000 after Peter preached and somewhere in there, your number when you were born into the kingdom of God is a part of that. For whom he did foreknow, those he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. It is the hope of God that Jesus Christ would be the prototype. He would be the number one in a whole family of sons that are made and raised up in his image and after his likeness. Come on, don't shout me down. I'm preaching already. Some of you can hear it. There in that place, on that spot while in that place, God made promise to Adam's race. And he said that this one that you are in strife, you will bear the seed of eternal life. And in Genesis 3.15, the protoevangel came and it literally said that there is one who's coming who will bruise the head of the serpent and the, the serpent will bruise his heel. And we know that that's the picture in, of the first gospel message that was preached right there on the spot where sin had just entered in. Nothing magical about the fruit. It wasn't a red apple. We don't really have any idea what it was. We're not going to believe some myth or some legend. What caused it was the disobedient act. It was disobedience against God. Adam and Eve committed high treason and basically said, we will do as we choose. We will be the God over our own lives. We will take that. It's not yours, it's ours. And God always responds with a sanction. This time it was a curse. And the curse came and the curse was pronounced on Adam and on Eve and by the sweat of his brow he would till the ground and the ground itself would be cursed and it would bring forth thorns and thistles. And it was out of that that man began to mourn. It's only a few chapters in Genesis where we see the rise of music and it was a guy by the name of Tubal, T-U-B-A-L, who begins to make some music with the horn and with the pipe. And throughout the whole Old Testament, there is a dirge. There is a mourn. We sang that song, O come, O come, Emmanuel. And ransom captive Israel. But if you'll notice, it doesn't stay in the minor key of mourning because when he comes, it rises to a major. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel. Shall ransom captive Israel. Music reflects the character and the nature of God in that the Father is the basis, the tonic note, the substance, the root. The Son, the third, 
the Holy Spirit, the fifth. But you know what? You will always stay in a place of mourning if the Son is not in His proper place. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. When we're mourning, it's for something that has not yet come. But I have to tell you today that He has already come. We're not looking for a Messiah that is yet to come. But we're looking for one who is coming back and he has already been rightly placed upon the throne of our hearts. And it changes our minor dirge of crying out into a place of major victory because he has come. When we put the sun in the right place, we move out of the sense of mourning and crying for fulfillment because satisfaction has come. Music is made up of suspense and resolution, of tension and rest. It's because it has the ability to touch down into the soul. I believe that the power of the spoken word is the greatest ministry on the planet. But Martin Luther, the great reformer, said, second only to the spoken word is the power of music to move the heart's of people, And with that, we can take chords and melodies and rhythm and we can begin to produce a feeling of crying out to God. But then when the answer comes, we don't continue to mourn. We're not always in a minor key. All creation mourns. Literally, the songs of the songbirds are in minor keys. It is man alone that has the ability to form together the, 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 the scale and sing with all of our hearts and sing in a major key. And it is only because the peace of God, the hope of the Lord has been answered in our lives. I didn't do this in the last service because it just hit me. The second time when we were singing, O come, O come, Emmanuel, it begins in a minor, but it finishes in a major because Emmanuel has now come. His presence, he's here. God with us. Are you hearing a little bit of what I'm saying this morning? Come on. You don't have to sing a sad song any longer. If there's anything, you have the ability now to be happy and blessed because of the one who lives on the inside of you. Oh, come on, somebody. Help me give him praise. I haven't even gotten started. Let me... Something about the gifts of Advent. Hope, love, joy, peace, and light. We will all gather in a few weeks, and in 15 minutes, we'll have destroyed what it took your parents, or we as parents, hours to shop and find and wrap up and put under the trees. I love to give. Jesus said himself, he's quoted in the book of Acts, that it's better to give than to receive. And there's something amazing about that. You guys are giving. I'm so grateful for all that you gave two Sundays ago in our miracle offering. Biggest one Sunday offering we've ever had before in existence of this church. We took up over $17,000. We paid for, we paid for, we paid for the 250 coats that we've already had on order. And we've already given out some of those to some schools for some children that we knew didn't have the ability to parents to buy a warm coat. And so we have these that are going to be available Next Saturday, is it one to three, I believe they said. Thank you for your generosity. It's great to give. God is going to multiply that back to you. I believe that. Not only in this, but in a couple of more outreaches in 2012. These funds that you gave will all go to us blessing this community. 
with the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ and with something that will help minister to the needs of people that are broken in this city. Jesus said, I'm sorry, not Jesus, but the writer of the Proverbs said, which I guess it's all Jesus' words anyhow. He said, when we give to the poor, we lend to the Lord and the Lord will repay us all. He's not going to let you be indebted. He's going to make sure you get paid back and usually with a lot of blessing on top of it. Can I have an amen? Amen. Something about the gifts of Advent, I I can pull out my pocket, my wallet, and I can give everybody a dollar bill in the room. Oh, let's just make it interesting. I'll give everybody a Benjamin. Okay. Everybody in the room, pass out a hundred. But when I give that to you, you have it now and I don't. Things are valued in our world and in our economy based on the principle called scarcity. Gold is valued because there's not much of it. You can get a handful of dirt and it's practically valueless unless you start trying to buy it in acres. Then we're talking about value. But you take up a handful of dirt and you compare it to a handful of gold and it's just almost incomparable. You've got a fraction of a penny in one hand and you will have literally probably well over $100,000 in the other hand because I think gold right now is over $1,700 an ounce. And gold is valued because there's not much of it. And when we are driven by scarcity, then we live under a, a, a mentality of limitation. And God is not limited. But what is so amazing is that even the presents that we give, the things that we give to each other, if they're all material-based and all we're ever thinking about is presence, P-R-E-S-E-N-T-S, instead of the real central meaning of what all this is about, what Advent brings back to us. Because Christmas in America has seemed to have gotten off track and it's destroyed. Now, don't, don't let me, don't, I am not Scrooge and I'm not the Grinch. I'm not going to steal your Christmas. I love Frosty. I watch Rudolph. Come on. I sing Jingle Bells. We have a Christmas tree. We give presents. Do don't you even look at me in that tone of voice. I love you. You do whatever you want to. But I, there's something that is a little bit offensive to me when we start ascribing the characteristics that only belong to God to a little fat man in a red suit. He knows when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He knows whether you've been so be good for. You better watch out. Now, I want to tell you, Santa Claus is great, great, you know, wonderful message. Get your kids taken with him in the pictures and all that kind of stuff. But let's just make sure. Let's bring this back. I'm not tearing anybody's idea about Christmas down. You do whatever you feel in your heart, in your Christian liberty. But let's remember. Let's get this thing back on track. And remember, it's about a baby in a manger. It's not about silver bells and a white Christmas and, and all of that different kind of stuff. Oh, that's great. I love it. It's just, I love it. Nothing gets me in the mood. I've had my stuff since we finished the, the Thanksgiving meal. Christmas music has been playing in my house. I am not Scrooge. Don't hear me the wrong way. But I want to tell you, this whole thing is all about a baby who grew up to be a man who died on a cross, who defeated death, who swallowed sin and sickness and everything that has to do with the curse. He is your Savior. He is your King. He is your Lord. And he knows when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He knows whether you've been bad or good. So be good for Jesus' sake. Do you still love me this morning? The amazing thing about the gifts of Advent is that I can give you and I still have mine. I can give you hope and yet my tank can still be full. I can build your faith 
And mine can be literally lapping over the top of my tank, brimming full. I can share love and friendship and I can give joy and I can minister peace. I can pray with someone and see God wash over them and bring forgiveness. Man, there's nothing that describes that kind of gift that God gives because when God gives it, he doesn't run out. There's no scarcity. The uniqueness of the gifts of Advent. I can give as much away as I want and I can continue to increase in how much I have myself. It's the gift that keeps on giving. Hope is defined as expectation. Susan and Buddy did a wonderful job this morning. Sweet family that have come to victory recently. Susan talked about hope that is longing for something, looking for something to happen that has the possibility of occurring, believing something to be true. She talked about the the, the whole thing about family, and I believe that's real. God longs for, God hopes for his family a family that is worldwide, a family that is red and yellow, black and white, that is male and female, that reaches up to the highest and down to the lowest and sees no distinction between, loves every one of them in a completely amazing, godlike, unique sort of way. Hope is an expectation. It's an anticipation. I love this first verse. The Bible says, Jeremiah 29, 11, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. We, we pull this out of context sometimes and print it on little cards and stick it on magnets on our refrigerator and we fail to remember the context. God gave these words of hope to a nation that was about to be taken into captivity for 70 years. God says it may look bad and it's going to get worse before it gets better, but I promise you up in the middle of all the difficult things that you're facing, because you're my sons and you're my daughters, because you're my people, I'm telling you that I've got a plan that's bigger than the stuff you don't understand that you're going through right now. And I'm telling you, I'm going to give you a future and a hope and I'm going to prosper you and not harm you. Why do you think God had to say it that way? Because sometimes before you get to the prosperity part, it looks like he's going to kill you. Now, don't shout me down now. But if you've lived a couple of years, you know what I'm talking about. The, 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 the theology of the bumper sticker is true. It says we make plans and then life happens. Things don't always fall out the way that we thought that they were going to. They don't always occur the way we think it will happen. And somewhere in the middle of all of that, I got to have some hope in something that is bigger than my own ability to try to fix the stuff that I'm going through. I've got to have trust in something that is bigger than myself. And thank God it's not a something, but it's a someone. And his name is Jesus. Come on, put your hands together and give him praise. The hope that God gives, number one, is for a restored relationship. Adam and Eve broke it. They dropped the ball. It was... A cosmic fumble. It was a fault. They were penalized. They had walked with God in the cool of the day, the King James says. Literally, the, the literal translation is in the spirit of the day. There was oneness with God. What our forebears, Adam and Eve, couldn't do in a perfect environment, Jesus Christ went to a wilderness for 40 days to be tempted by the devil. De by the devil, that's it, yeah. <laughs> We're going to go to the islands now, man. <laughs> Look at your neighbor and say, shut the door. <laughs> Keep out the devil. <laughs> uh, 
you just might as well laugh. You get tongue tied around that one, you know. <laughs> Have a good time. What our forebears couldn't do in a perfect environment, in a paradise in Eden. They birthed two kids and one of them killed the other one. Now you talk about family problems. Dr. Phil hadn't seen that. <laughs> How's that working for you? Dysfunction began at the root. It started with Adam and Eve after they sinned. What they couldn't accomplish in a perfect environment, in a paradise, Jesus went to the wilderness. Try it again. Here we go. And even in that imperfect place was tempted by the devil for 40 days and defeated him and won the victory over him for you and me. Come on, put your hands together and give him praise. The hope that has been planted in our hearts, the hope of man, I'm going to talk about this in two segments quickly now, hope of man and the hope of God. First of all, as the hope that God has given me as a man is that I can have the restoration of something. I reach into something that is bigger than me. I know I look at the stars. I look at the sky. I look at creation. I see the complexity of it. I see the, the amazing variety that God gave Dawn and I had a phenomenal time. I want to thank you as the congregation for blessing us last month, October, in Pastor Appreciation Month and sending us over to the beautiful Mount Magazine Lodge for a mountain getaway for the weekend. Dawn and I enjoyed that last weekend. I heard Pastor Alex did a phenomenal job preaching and closing out the Traveler's Gift. Dawn and I had an amazing time sitting up there on the highest point centrally in the whole nation between the Appalachians and the Rockies is this point right here in Arkansas at Mount Magazine, the highest point. We hiked up it, stood on the top spot, and prayed. We stopped and prayed for this congregation, for our family. We just said, Lord, for our folks at home who've blessed us with this, thank you that you pour out your blessing upon them in a greater way than you ever have in 2012. We stood there on that spot, highest spot in Arkansas, and prayed and said, God, pour out your blessing upon this church and upon this city. We continue to believe you, O oh God, for revival to come the way it never has before in history, to shake the delta, to pull down poverty and prejudice and, and, and ignorance and all these kind of things that bind us here in this community. And, and God blessed us. I was amazed as I stood there and looked out at all of the colors of leaves and the kinds of trees, the hills and the mountains and the valley and the Pettigene Reservoir out there. And we looked at that and I saw and there's something that just reaches up that just acknowledges God, you are so amazing in what you put together for us. You not only made it, but you still cause it to be provided. Seasons and months and years and seeds and crops and food and blessing and all of these things that you pour out upon us. Thank you, Father. That was our weekend. And in the middle of that, I reach up because I, I know there's something that is bigger than me. Ecclesiastes 3, the Bible says, God has set eternity in the hearts of men. And so it's only a, a reaching, an acknowledging that there's something greater, a, a hope to be restored. And that first thing is the idea of a restored relationship. Jesus, who is the central figure of this whole thing called Christmas of Advent, the Bible tells us in John 1, 11 through 14, listen, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. God looked on you one day and decided to breathe life into your spiritual deadness. That is the only reason we sing the song. It's all because of Jesus I'm alive. That is so true. It's only because of him. 
It's all for grace. It's nothing that I have done. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father full of grace and truth. How many of you thankful for restored relationship this morning? Number two, forgiveness of sins. Forgiveness of sins. 4,000 years before the son would stand up in maturity and say these words, God had planted a seed back in Genesis 3.15 that the one who's coming, the one who's coming would bruise the head of the serpent and the serpent would bruise his heel. That seed was planted and he was raised up and he matured and he stood before men and he said, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but would have everlasting life. Listen to verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but in order that the world might be saved through him. Jesus is not angry. Too many times we portray an angry God to the world around us. We, we, we write little quick slogans on banners and we wave them with angry faces in the face of people that we think are wrong. And how do we think we're going to win them and tell them about a Savior who's not angry with them when we are burning and seething with hatred and anger toward any, you just whatever the people group is. Jesus Christ's love is greater than anything that the curse of man or the sin of Adam ever did. Come on. For God so loved the world in order that the world might be saved through him. Number three, freedom from bondage and from the curse. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. All of these things are salvation from something. The curse, God pronounced it a sanction immediately on the spot when disobedience entered. But I want to tell you that immediately as soon as he did, he predicted that one would come who would reverse the curse. This one would not only reverse the curse, but he would become the king of the universe. Isaac Watts penned the amazing words, and George Frederick Handel set it to music. For 50 years, it was not known as a Christmas carol. It was known as the triumphant reign of Christ. Joy to the world. The Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room, and heaven and nature sing. Joy to the world. The Savior reigns. Let men their songs employ while fields and floods, rocks, hills, and plains repeat the sounding joy. Repeat, repeat, repeat the sounding joy. We opened the service this morning with a casting crown song that Greg led. It says, until the whole world hears. God, the troubadour, God, the singer, is not going to stop singing until the whole world hears. And it's no longer sung in a mindful, a mournful dirge, but God's moved into a major because the answer has already been sent and the work has already been finished on the cross 2,000 years ago. Come on, give him some praise this morning. We know the first and the second and the fourth verse. Fourth is he rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove 
the glories of his love and the wonders of his righteousness. But we skip three every time. I don't know why we do. You know, you grew up in church and you sang the first, second, and fourth verses. There's a lot of truth hidden in those third verses you never sang. Listen to the third verse of Joy to the World. No more let sin nor sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings known far as the curse is found. Far as, far as the curse is found. What I'm saying to you this morning is that what Adam did, Jesus stretched farther and engulfed it and wrapped it up and swallowed it up and he's removed the curse and he swallowed it up in the blessing of the finished work at the cross. Come on, somebody. We have a risen Savior because we serve a babe in a manger and he's not just a baby anymore. He has grown up to become the great conqueror, Messiah, Jehovah. The king of kings is he. When he reversed the curse, listen to what he did. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Listen to these five benefits of grace. Hear it right here. Who forgives all of your iniquity. Who heals all your diseases. Who redeems your life from the pit. Who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies your mouth with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Five things. He forgives your iniquities, he heals your diseases, he redeems you from the pit of destruction, saves you from hell, from something, from iniquity, from sin, from sickness, from hell, from dissatisfaction and unhappiness and all of that kind of stuff. God saves you from that. But that's only half the message. And too many times in too many churches, that's all that's preached is what you got saved from. Nobody ever tells you what you've been saved unto. All that I just preached right there is the hope of man, restored relationship, forgiveness of sins, freedom from bondage and the curse. But there's another side to it. And I'm I've spent too much time on the first part, so I've got to put this in turbo. Hope of man is one thing, but the hope of God is something greater. Everybody say the hope of God. God. Listen, Ephesians 1, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. Look at your neighbor right now and say, neighbor, God has a hope in you for a reason. Say it, come on. You were born for a purpose. You were born for a reason. God has called you by name as his sheep because he anticipates something coming out of your life. God has an expectation when he looks at you and calls you by name. It is the hope of his calling which he has put on your life. Come on, somebody. When you begin to see with the eyes of the Lord and you start to see this thing is bigger than just what I can get out of it, what I've been saved from, how God can bless me, my and mine, it stretches my vocabulary out of me, my and mine and us for and no more. And I start to see, I start to speak in terms of him and, and, and our privilege in being a part of this program called the kingdom of God. It's amazing. It's not about me. It's all about Jesus. Say that with me right now. It's not about me. It's all about Jesus. Revelation chapter 4 verse 11. Listen, thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive honor and glory and power for you have created all things and for your pleasure they are 
and were created. God took pleasure when he made you. Some of you struggle with the idea that's just foreign. God, in all of my struggles, there, I just can't get my head around that, that you take pleasure in my life. Saints, that's the Bible. That's what the Word says. You were created for His pleasure. He is the center of this thing. Not me, not us, not you. Him. Him and Him alone. It is for His glory. It is for His pleasure. It is for His will. Number two, the kingdom of God is His purpose. The church is His instrument. The kingdom of God is His purpose. This thing begins as a seed. It gets planted in my life The kingdom can be advanced when it begins, first of all, in the individual. It starts in my heart. Jesus becomes Lord of my life, and he he gives me a a new, fresh start. He cleans me up, and he divides me from my past and covers that stuff in the blood and says, it's gone. That's an old man buried in baptism. Come on, you've got a whole new life, a new nature, a whole new kind of motivation, a new, fresh way to live. Hallelujah. But you didn't just get saved from that. You got saved to something that's bigger than that. The seed was planted in Genesis. Throughout all of the Old Covenant, the prophets laid an additional line on it saying the seed is coming, the seed is coming. Prophets of old, sages, wise men declared the word of the Lord. Micah tells us where he will be born. Daniel tells us when he will be born. Isaiah tells us how he will be born. A virgin shall conceive and bring forth a son. You'll call his name Emmanuel. You just take the big three, the big three major prophecies about who Jesus is, the family to whom he will be born to, this Messiah that is coming, the time in which he will be born, and the probability of anybody else in history fulfilling that and stepping into the fulfillment of those three big prophecies, of which, by the way, there happen to be over 300 in the Old Testament about this central figure of Advent, this Christ of Christmas of whom we celebrate. If you just take the big three and you want to talk about the probability of anybody else in history standing in those shoes and being that Messiah, that Savior, when he was born, to whom he was born, how he was born, let me just give you some idea of the odds. I'll be your bookie this morning, okay? (laughs) The odds are this. We fill up the state of Texas with silver dollars and stack them three feet high. We mark one of them with an X and we send a blind man into the state of Texas to find the one silver dollar that's marked with an X. And the chances of that blind man finding that silver dollar on the first try and lifting it up and holding it up that's marked with an X is the same probability that anybody else except Jesus would fulfill those prophecies. Come on, somebody, give your Savior and your Lord some praise today. In other words, it is not a chance. It is mathematically impossible. The odds are so stacked. It has to be Jesus. He fulfilled it. Dotted every I, crossed every T in prophetic scripture all out through history. The seed is coming. The seed is coming. They continue declaring that seed is coming. The seed is coming. Finally, the gospels arrive and the seed is here and the seed lives. But the seed dies and folk can't figure out why. God must have failed. His plan must have fallen apart. But he took everything that was the curse down to the grave and buried it with him. And he rose up triumphant over it. And we serve. We serve the Christ of Easter because we recognize the babe of Christmas. Because you wouldn't have Easter if you didn't have Christmas. You wouldn't have a Savior who becomes Lord if we didn't have a baby 
who was born the God-man. All God, all man at the same time. Hope. Hope is a seed. Throughout the Old Covenant, the seed is coming, the seed is coming, the seed is coming. And they loved the seed as long as he was a prophecy. But when he showed up, they hated him. And they did not receive him. Because he didn't come the way they expected. Too many times we get offended at God because God ultimately works and brings to pass, but sometimes it doesn't happen the way we thought it was going to happen to get it there. Jeremiah 29, that's why God told them before they entered 70 years of captivity, hey, listen, I got a plan for you. I know it's going to look bleak some of these times, and it's going to get worse before it gets better, but I'm telling you, I got a future and a hope for you, and you're going to come out of this. Somebody in the room needs to hear that this morning because you're up in the middle of some captivating circumstances. It's not going to be 70 years the way Israel was in captivity to the Babylon, Babylonians. But don't give up because what's been there, whether it's been a few weeks or a few months or maybe you've even struggled for this for years, God says, I have a plan for you to give you a future and a hope and he'll bring you out of it if you'll keep your trust and your hope in him. Come on, somebody, give him some praise. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. Paul says to me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. God wants to shine through you and show out to all of his enemies and up in the middle of your life. Come on, you got to remember, if you feel like you're surrounded by all your enemies, then you need to back up and look for the table that's spread for you because the Bible says he will lay a spread out there in the presence of your enemies. Come on, somebody. That's the word of the Lord. This was according to the eternal purpose which he realized in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. Number three, and I'm finished. God began this thing in hope and planted a seed because he wanted Jesus, the firstborn of the new creation, to be one among many brethren. And that what would begin in the heart of a man would ultimately change the created order. Romans 8 says... The whole creation is mourning. It's crying out and travailing, looking for the manifestation of the sons of God. For the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by, the, by reason of him who has subjected the same in hope. He says that the creature himself might be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. What that says, that mouthful of King James theological language I just said right there is before this thing is over with, God is going to set free the whole created order. Not just you and your life from sin, what you've been saved from, but God has a plan for you to participate in the advancing of his kingdom until the whole, every square inch of the planet is saturated with the glory of God and all of creation sings to God be the glory. That's the story of Christmas right there. We have a hope. 
The seed is coming, the seed is coming. In the Gospels, the seed lives and the seed dies. In the book of Acts, the seed is alive. It's raised from the dead. In the epistles, the seed speaks, but in the book of Revelation, the seed reigns. Listen to this last scripture as I'm finished this morning. The book of 2 Peter says this, but according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. I have a chance when I choose to forgive someone else, I'm planting a hopeful seed that peace will come to the earth. When I choose to extend love and mercy in the face of retaliation and taking vengeance and making war, I'm planting a seed that there will be a day and hope that there will be a new heaven and a new earth wherein dwells righteousness and peace has come to earth. Jesus is our Prince of Peace. I must begin at home and I must pour out love and forgiveness and mercy upon my own family, upon my neighbors, those who've said things against me, those who've wounded me, those who've offended me. Every one of us in the room, we have that choice to be Christ-like or to take on the spirit of the world. The spirit of the world makes war. The spirit of Christ brings peace. This morning, I just want to say to you, in all of the pursuit of going for the latest toy and the newest gadget and the pushing and the shoving and the grabbing, there was one who came and he did not consider his equality with God something to be grasped. He willingly laid it down. Philippians 2 says, He emptied himself, he became a servant. Revelation 21, God's dream, God's design, God's desire is that the seed that's been planted in you will eventually move and change and recreate everything until we have a paradise that's been restored. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Notice, it's coming down to us. Do you, do you read your Bible? Well, what, no, I, wait a minute, I thought I was going up there. No, the Bible says it's coming down to us. Well, now that's not what all those gospel songs say. Oh, well, anyway. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. The hope of that begins when it starts in your heart that all the former junk in your life is now gone. It's been covered by the blood. It's passed away. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has gone. The new has come. I'm saved from that, but I'm saved to something bigger than that. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. God has power to just drop a cosmic bomb and just start the whole thing all over again. He has the ability to just say, look, I'm tired of this whole mess. It ain't working. 
I want to make all new things. But that's not what the Bible says God is going to do. He has the ability to do that, but God said, no, I'm going to make all things new. There's a complete difference between I'm going to make all new things and I'm going to make all things new. What I'm trying to tell somebody under the sound of my voice this morning is that God has the ability to take all your stuff and all your junk and every struggle you have and everything that you're messed up with and he takes the seed of the gospel and he plants it down into the soil of your soul in the middle of all of that dirt and it starts moving around on the inside of you and it starts changing things and it's wrestling with your thinking and your thought patterns well I can't do that anymore because there's something new down on the inside of me and I'm a new creation And like a seed, a seed has so much power inherently down on the inside of it. I I have seen a seed fall into the crack in a rock of a mountain and that seed would start to grow. And in the middle of that hard place, a tree would start to grow and it would split that mountain open. When I was a kid, I saw a seed fall down into the crack of a sidewalk and every day from school for six years, I walked home from Bragg and I saw every year the sidewalk got moved farther away and the crack got bigger and the tree got larger. A seed had the power to move the weight of concrete. What am I telling you this morning? There is hope that is being planted down on the inside of your heart that is big enough to move out all of your junk and the weight of your sin and the struggle of your sickness and every temptation that you will ever have. The hope of God, if you just get it planted down on the inside of your heart, it will change your life. My, my, my. And that that you're longing for, you don't even know it. You don't even put it into words. You can't even sing it in a melody. It's in a mourn. It's in a minor key. But then when he comes, he lifts it up. And the son takes the proper place on the throne in your heart. And the minor becomes a major. The Lord has come. Let this earth receive her king. Would you bow your heads with me, please, this morning? Gracious God, thank you. For this word this morning today. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you can do what no man can do. I sense your presence moving, operating, drawing in the lives of people that are sitting here in this room this morning, some of which feel like they don't have an answer. And the only hope they have is Jesus. That is your answer. With every head bowed and every eye closed, I just want to say this to you very briefly. The only way you can know the greatness to which God has called you to is to first of all experience what he's come to save you from. None of us are worthy. None of us are good enough. When you ask people how they're doing and they respond and say, better than I deserve, that is everyone's testimony. I deserve a sinner's hell. I am sinful and God is holy. I am unrighteous. God's character is light. And I'm born in darkness. Something has to change me. Something has to come into me. And that begins by hearing the gospel. You've heard it this morning. The hope of God. The hope of the gospel. That seed's already been planted in your heart today. The Spirit of God is moving and drawing. All I'm asking you to do is acknowledge that. He that has the Son has life. 
He that hath not the Son shall not see life, 1 John says. Do you have him this morning? Is he sitting on the throne of your heart? When you stand before him, can you say, he paid my debt that he did not owe? I couldn't pay it. Will that be the testimony of your mouth? I put my trust in Jesus because without that, every one of us is hell-bent, hell-bound. We deserve that. But the Bible says the gift of a God is eternal life. The wages of sin is death. You want to try to earn this? Devil, devil will take care of you on payday. Wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. I ask you today, just in this short moment, with every head bowed, every eye closed, all you have to do right now is just acknowledge that, that you have no ability to do it yourself. You're bankrupt. And you're saying, Jesus, I put my hope in you. The hymn writer said it this way, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. It's his blood. You're trusting in his shed blood for you that saves you. Very simply, you don't have to understand all that theology. You just need to say what the word says. It says, Jesus, save me. Whosoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Spirit of God right now is calling. He's calling his sheep by name. Do you hear it? Do you hear God calling your name right now? If you do, every head bowed, every eye closed. If you would like to be included in this prayer, if you would just slip up your hand, I want to pray for you. Not going to embarrass anybody, not calling anybody forward. Thank you. I see several hands around the house. Thank you so much. I want to pray with you right now. Father, in Jesus' name, these that have raised their hands, thank you for the work of the Holy Spirit going on in their lives right now. Jesus, you said, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Except a man be born of the water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Thank you today, Lord, that as these people cry out to you and put their hope in you and say, Jesus, save me. Thank you, Lord, that by your Holy Spirit, not of blood, not of the will of man, nor of the will of flesh, but of God, the will of God, these people are born again today into the kingdom of God. They put their hope in you, Lord. Just say that right now. Jesus, save me. Forgive me, Lord. Come into my heart. Change me. Lord, I just thank you that you do a fresh work of the Holy Spirit. Pour out upon each of these lives today that you're doing something new and fresh in. Every head still bowed, every eye still closed. You've been walking with the Lord. It may be a week. It may be 50 years. Something has gotten down. A seed got planted into the crack of your sidewalk this morning. And you know something's different. Hope has been rekindled in your life. I want to pray for you today. Anybody who senses that, if you would just slip up your hand. I'm not going to embarrass anybody. Several around the room. Father, thank you for these hands that went up. Lord, who some of them are hoping against hope in the face of insurmountable odds, in the face of all kinds of circumstances. God, thank you that you plant hope in their hearts and you rekindle it today as they put their hope in you, oh God. Something greater than us. Jesus, it's about you. Lord, thank you that you do a work. Bring breakthrough, set free, deliver, change circumstances, move mountains. Lord, come walking on the stormy, choppy waters, Lord, of the sea, in the boat. Get in the boat with these people, Lord, in the storm that they're in, in Jesus' name. Give them hope today, I pray. And all of God's people said,